Life is hard. Life with chronic, critical, and complex health concerns is even harder. We all know someone who is struggling with health issues or disability. It might even be you. And in the pain and suffering, we wonder if it's possible to move from surviving to thriving. We struggle to hope, struggle to persevere, struggle to trust that God knows what he's doing. But in the struggle, there is real hope, and it's possible to be rooted and ready to weather the storm. Welcome to the Bluestem Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Bluestem Project Podcast. It's good to be here with you, and it is my sincere hope that by listening, you're better equipped and encouraged for the journey of suffering, hardship, and trial that comes with health issue and disability. It's my prayer that you're drawn closer to God and rooted deeper in His Son, Jesus Christ. In this episode, we're going to be continuing our series on considering Jesus from Hebrews 12.3, which says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I truly believe that thinking deeply on Jesus and what he endured is energy and strength for the body and soul in times of suffering and trial. Uh, and in the previous episode, I brought us to the kind of the heart of the matter before you. Uh, in other words, like why was there such a hostility from sinners towards Jesus? And John three nineteen to 21 tells us, it says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And we saw in episode 3 that Jesus' hometown and his family opposed him, right? So this small little hometown of Nazareth, population four to 500, sought to kill him when he presented himself as the Messiah and then indicted them for their unbelief and rejection of him. They, wanted, they brought him to the brow of a hill and sought to stone him by throwing him over it. And then we saw that his family thought he was out of his mind in another instance, and that his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers uh, even told him to go into an area of the country where there were some who wanted to kill him because of who he said he was and what he was doing. And they said, hey, go there, prove yourself, do your miracles. And yet they didn't believe that he was able to. So that's quite hostile to send, try and send your brother to go do something he can't do in an area where people want to kill you for what you're saying and for what you're saying and doing and who you are saying that you are. And in this episode, uh, we want to look at an example of how governing authority was hostile towards Jesus. It's found in one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's read every Christmas and is a part of Christmas lawn decor in nativity scenes around the world. In this passage, wise men show up looking for a Jewish king so they might worship him. Uh, but they are, of course, unaware that their visit will trigger what ends up being a murderous rampage. And so we'll look at Matthew 2, 1 to 18 in a second. But I want to start with a little story from history to kind of frame what we're going to end up discussing a little bit with Jesus. So if you go to the night of July 16th and 17th, 1918, a nail was placed in the coffin of Russia's old ruling order. The rule of kings, or czars as they were called, was coming to about a 370-year end. Deposed by the Bolshevik Revolution a year earlier in 1917, Tsar Nicholas and his wife Alexandria and their five children had been imprisoned in a royal palace, then shipped to Siberia, and later moved to a guarded house in Yekaterinburg near the Ural Mountains. And there, a double palisade was built to obstruct any views in or out. The windows were sealed and whitewashed. The family was instructed, hey, don't, you know, don't look outside or make any signals to anyone. If you do, the guards will shoot you. Uh, if a family member inside the house wanted to use the bathroom, they needed to ring a bell. Uh, no letters were to be sent 
or received. So they're really completely cut off from the outside world. And the communists understood the threat that Tsar Nicholas posed to their new regime. And they realized he needed to be, in their minds, eliminated once and for all. But it wasn't just Tsar Nicholas who was a threat. It was his entire royal family. Because for almost four centuries, rule and power were passed through familial bloodlines. So to rule Russia, Tsar or Tsarina was a birthright. And I had a professor in college once who said, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think it's hard to argue that. So around midnight, July 16, 17, 1918, the family was awakened. They're told a lie. Hey, you must get dressed. We're moving you to a safer location. There's chaos in the city. And the family, Nicholas, Alexandra, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei were brought to a cellar room and told to wait for the truck that would transport them. A few minutes later, the secret police come in and read aloud these words. Nikolai Alexandrovich, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Nicholas, stunned, faced his family and said, What? What? After repeating the command, complete chaos ensued. A barrage of gunfire and bayoneting erased the entire family. And I wonder if you know this. An attempt at murdering Jesus was made when he was just a toddler. So here he is, the light of the world, attempted to be extinguished while he was yet a small candle flicker before he burst into glorious blaze. Around the age of two years, right, Jesus had done nothing in action, word, or deed to threaten those in power. But as we'll see, the title of King of Israel was to be his by the very promise of God and by God's sovereign working through history and family line. Let me read Matthew 2, 1 to 8. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, we'll come back to him in a second, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may, that I too may come and worship him. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in obedience to the decree of Caesar Augustus, who wanted to take a census. Uh, This was by the sovereign working of God, who had foretold, as it was stated in verse 5, that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Christ. Uh, I think this type of working is absolutely astounding, right? Like God could have moved the, the chess pieces differently to get his son born in Bethlehem. But in this case, he did it via census by a pagan ruler. And we're introducing the passage to Herod the king, and this refers to Herod the Great. He also had sons who ruled after him that carried his name. Uh, He ruled from about 37 uh, B.C. to 4 B.C. He was an Idumean, Edomite father and a Jewish mother, and he ruled Israel and Judah underneath the Roman Empire. And he embraced Judaism at least in part. So he encouraged it, 
but he lived a lifestyle that was very decadent and sinful in the eyes of observant Jews. And so he was often opposed by those who were devout. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees certainly at times did not enjoy or appreciate him. But he was a master builder. So he built many theaters, cities, palaces, fortresses. He's probably best known for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which was a monumental undertaking. It took about 46 years, and this pleased the Jews greatly. Uh, certainly Herod wanted to gain the support and adoration of his Jewish subjects. After all, he was, he was known as king of the Jews by the Romans. But Herod really wasn't a devout, God-fearing Jew, purely committed to their first commandment. So first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, Herod also financed pagan temples. Uh, he, did, he dedicated one, at least one, to Caesar Augustus, and even built pagan cities as well because he wanted to appeal to the pagan population under his jurisdiction. So he, he has sought to appe- appease those he rules, Jews and pagans, and those who rule over him, Rome, because honestly, when you, when you look at the guy's life, he loved nothing more than his own power and prestige. Uh, he would in due time, murder his own wife, several sons, and other relatives in his quest to stay in power. And as we'll see, he wants Jesus, who he's told is born king of the Jews, dead as well. The Jewish historian Josephus had this to say about Herod. He was a man of great barbarity towards all men equally and a slave to his passion, but above the consideration of what was right. So the most famous part of the story that you see every Christmas is the wise men showing up. You'll, right, you'll see nativity scenes in people's yard, and there's usually three wise men carrying three gifts. Uh, the Bible actually doesn't tell us that there are three men, just that there's three gifts. And so I don't know, that's probably become a bit of a traditional thing to just say there were three men. There's probably likely more. And they follow a star. And, and these guys are certainly learned men in astronomy and Somehow they believe or understand that there is a star in the sky that points to a Jewish king having been born. And I think it's pretty fascinating to look at the various explanations that have been given for the star and who the wise men were. We don't really have time to explore that in detail. Uh, one website that I had, I've looked at at times is Bethlehemstar.net. That has a pretty interesting explanation. In my opinion, I think it's the best explanation I've seen to date, but in part, I, I don't know that we totally know. Um, and we also don't know exactly who these wise men were. It's possible that they were descendant, descendants of Jews from the prophet Daniel's day who were taken into captivity in Babylon to the east. We know that Daniel had a remarkable knowledge. It would make sense that Jewish descendants would be interested in a Jewish king. We won't explore this any more than just to say that they're the ones who bring the news of the birth of Jesus, king of the Jews, to Herod, who is also called king of the Jews. And Herod's response initially is he wants to know from the wise men about Jesus, and he gives this false pretense of being a devoted worshiper when really he has murderous intentions. Let me continue reading in verse 9. I'll give some insights as I read through the passage. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So whatever the star was, God controlled it by great power and precision to bring them to Jesus. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, right? They've undertaken this long, dangerous, expensive, I'm sure, journey to see this Jewish king. And so they're really 
overjoyed when they do see him. And I think in some sense, they do believe the star will lead them to a king, but there's got to be a sense of like, is this really going to happen? And so when they do find him, they of course have great joy. And it says in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God here intervenes via a dream to protect his son. Continuing on, it says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So the dream to the wise men buys time. God sends a dream to Joseph to get the little family out of Dodge before death is about to swoop in. Continuing on here. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod, I mean, he becomes furious, right, at the the threat to his power and prestige. He bursts into an absolute fury. It kind of reminds me of the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to the image he's put up, and he just freaks out in fury. Now, notice this, though, that he, Herod believed the chief priests and the scribe regard, scribes regarding the birthplace of Christ being Bethlehem. And, and how do we know that? Because in his, his frustration, his fury, his fanaticism, he calls for all the male children of Bethlehem and in that region, it says, who are two years old or under, to be killed. So he really believes there's something there, and he is not okay with there being a new king of the Jews. And as we saw, like God uses what are miraculous occurrences to deliver Jesus by way of two dreams, but also these occurrences provide a, a prophecy fulfillment, which is also right miraculous in our eyes, because how does, how does God say something, you know, we, oh, put it this way, it's not hard to think that God can say something and bring it about, but for us to have something stated or prophesied hundreds of years beforehand you know, it's quite shocking. And God does that occasionally, or not occasionally, he does that regularly throughout the scriptures. And I'd like to point out, like, the fulfillment of God's word in these prophecies here and elsewhere, right, it provides a weight of certainty regarding the identity of Jesus and legitimacy of his mission. So there's a number of things in this passage that happen that provide a weight of certainty. There's a miraculous celestial occurrence with a star, there's these wise men that show up who somehow know, right, a Jewish king has been born and they're coming to worship him. God protects his son and his mission of saving sinners via these, these two dreams. And it's all well-fulfilling prophecy written hundreds of years before. God is saying something about who Jesus is and we should believe him. And when I was thinking about this, I, it would be accurate, I think, to say that 
in this case, as a as opposed to a lot of the others that we're, we have looked at or we will look at of the hostility Jesus faces from sinners, that it's it's minimized by his age, right? As a probable two-year-old or around there, and in his humanity, and it, you know, he's fully human and he's fully God, but he really experiences real humanity and his two-year-old innocence, he probably isn't all that affected, right? I have a, a two-year-old boy right now, Bridger, and Bridger Honestly, he isn't all that affected by the stress of finances or bills or vehicle breakdowns or house fixes, et cetera, et cetera, that, that he, uh, or that I and, my, and his mother experience it, right? He's kind of marvelously naive to it. So unless the things that I just mentioned affect us and how we treat him, he's not really going to be affected um, all that much. Now, did all these occurrences affect Mary and Joseph and how they treated Jesus? We, we don't really know. The scriptures don't tell us. So while Jesus at this age may not have experienced the type of pain from hostility of some of the other examples we've seen, it does set an interesting starting point for his entire earthly life and ministry. Like, he's a hunted man from the beginning. There are people who want him dead. And when he starts his actual ministry, it's something like four to six months in uh, of his three-year public ministry that, some, that someone or some people want him dead. And so this is a backdrop for everything that he does and why he does it. I want to bring us back to the, the story I started the episode with about the, the ruling Romanov family of Russia. So for years after they were murdered, rumors persisted that one of the heirs was still alive. People kind of held on to this hope that a legitimate ruler would arise from the ashes to depose the, you know, the cruel and barbaric communist government. Some historians surmise that during the, the reign of, of Joseph Stalin, who was just one of the, the rulers uh, of communism there, that 20 million plus were killed. So you can, you can see why the, the people held out hope that you know, either Olga or Tatiana or Maria or Anastasia or Alexei survived. And many Russians longed for deliverance. And the Soviet government really didn't confirm the deaths of the entire Romanov family until 1926. But this was only after claiming at one point, say, I think it was in 1919, that they were murdered by other revolutionaries, and then in 1922, denying outright that the family was dead at all. And so these cover-ups fueled all these rumors of survivors. And there were a number of people who came forward and claimed that they were one of the children. Most notably, in 1922, a young Russian woman emerged from the Daldorf Asylum in Germany and announced that she was Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov. And many believed her story. She got worldwide fame and even um, a lot in New York and the United States. But no one really knew for sure until, like, we're talking many, many years later. So the, the burial site of the Romanov family had not been discovered until 1979. Some of the family was discovered then. And also the other two remaining family members were discovered in 2007. And DNA analysis wouldn't really confirm the remains of all the Romanov family until 1907. So you're talking like 90 years after the murders. This this young lady who claimed she was Anastasia was finally discredited as a fraud. And I think it's totally understandable that people long to believe that one of the Romanov children had survived. Because it meant a different life. It meant a different ruling class. It meant a different hope. 
And here's the interesting thing in our story. Jesus, the king, did survive. God delivered him. And Jesus would go on to live a remarkable life, die an incredibly heroic, planned, and purposeful death, and he would establish his kingship and his kingdom in absolutely stark contrast to Herod, who tried to murder him. So if you think about this, Herod attempts to kill Jesus and does kill many baby boys in and around Bethlehem so that he can, can keep and establish his kingship and kingdom. And Jesus shows up, on the other hand, doesn't take life, but willingly gives his to establish his kingship and kingdom. And one day, everyone who has ever lived will recognize Jesus truly for who he is. Let me, let me just read Philippians 2, 8 to 11. It says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person, every knee will bow and acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. Can I just ask a question? Have you, listener, acknowledged what these wise men did in the story, that Jesus is the Christ and the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world? Have you acknowledged that in such a way that you've given your heart to him? In the story we read, like Herod acknowledged that Jesus was a, was a real king and a threat. He, he, he acknowledged that too. But his response was to eliminate him. God tells us that one day, all will acknowledge the fact that Jesus is Lord. But on that day, not all will benefit from the knowledge. Some will acknowledge after it is too late. The Bible tells us, you know, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's my prayer that you would trust and believe that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He's King. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Blue Stem Project. It's been a pleasure having you. The Blue Stem Project exists to equip and encourage you in the suffering, hardships, and trials of life that come with health issue and disability. We do this by helping root you in Christ and by giving you the tools you need to be ready for life's greatest obstacles. It'd be an honor to take this journey with you. Please do hit the subscribe button and tell a friend or family member experiencing health issues and medical disability about the Blue Stem Project. Mm-hmm.